We talk about that we're in this kind of fear period in dog training where it's really easy to assign everything to fear. So every dog is scared. And I just don't believe that. Nando Brown and Joe Rosie Haffenden are my wonderful and often hilarious guests on this episode, and we unpack some interesting and sometimes controversial constructs when talking about aggression, including things like drive, arousal, and predatory behavior. We also discuss the need to understand breed-specific behaviors and the genetics involved, with a focus on bully breeds. And this episode is sponsored by AggressiveDog.com, where you can find a variety of educational offerings with a focus on helping dogs with aggression, including the Aggression in Dogs Master Course, the most comprehensive course available anywhere in the world on helping dogs with aggression, and the Aggression in Dogs Conference, a unique three-day live stream event happening from October 22nd to 24th, 2021, with 12 amazing speakers. You can find out more by going to the looseleashacademy.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Bitey End of the Dog. I'm Mike Shikashio, and I'm super excited to have two special guests this episode. Nando Brown and Joe Rosie Haffenden. I've known them for a while. I've followed both of their work for a while. Fascinating discussions they always uh, seem to conjure up in the dog training world. And I'm really excited to talk about many different things. We're actually, this show I think is going to get into a deep dive into a lot of different topics. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit more about them though, in case you don't know what they're up to. Joe has been doing a lot of different things in the dog world. She's been on TV. She's an expert witness, uh, which I know takes a lot of training and work to do here in the United States. There's a lot of research involved in doing that. So uh, kudos just for that part of things. Uh, she's had a successful career in television, co-presenting Channel 4's Rescue Dogs to Super Dogs, ITV's Teach My Pet, and has just finished presenting a new show on Channel 4, I believe this year, right? Or maybe last year, if we're reading the bio correctly. Last year, all right? And uh, she's uh, represented by TV agent David Foster and has enjoyed a range of other TV opportunities. She also creates regular content for her thriving social media channels, which is on Facebook. You can find her, Instagram, YouTube. Her passion is rescue dogs, in particular pit bulls, which we're going to talk about more as well. And she's led her to become one of the country's leading experts on the breed. And as such, she has been asked to lecture internationally on the breed, as well as talk on mainstream national TV, international and local radio, as well as write for international national, and local papers on the subject. Nando also has quite a following on social media. He's got his YouTube channel, which I followed for a while. He's got millions of views on there. He's got a big Facebook channel. That's kind of how I got to know Nando as well, is kind of following his work on social media, spreading the good word about positive reinforcement and dog training. He's worked on Rescue Dog to Super Dog with Joe, Teach My Pet for Channel 4, and ITV. And uh, as well has a regular section on Marbella Now, which I guess, Nando, is the show on where? Where can people find that? Well, that's a Spanish TV show. Excellent. Yeah, that's very niche. If if you're in the States, you're not going to watch that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And he's also a published author. He's uh, originally known for trick training, and uh, he's the founder of the In the Doghouse Trick Dog Titles. He's also made a significant contribution to the world of scent as the founder of the World Scent Dog Association. He's got a keen interest in protection sports, which we're going to talk more about as well, and is currently training his dog for Mondio Ring competitions 
as well as aiming for his decoy certification. So welcome, Mando and Joe. I'm really excited for this one. We're super excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Excellent. So why don't we jump right in here? We're going to talk about this hot topic that's kind of making the circles in dog training and sort of the behavior world, which is the quote-unquote arousal in dogs. And we can even segue into pit bulls and sort of the terrier lines we're talking about in terms of arousal. And I think arousal has gotten turned into like a four-letter word. It's like the word dominance used to be in these words that <laughs> we, we get afraid to actually put on uh, on a Facebook post anymore because of the potential misunderstandings that can come with that word. So let's open up with that topic, arousal, and maybe even its sister, impulse control, and what your thoughts are on there. And maybe it's brother drive. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the cousin frustration. So yeah, we got, we got a lot to talk about on this topic. So arousal, let's talk about that. And, you know, we can we can reference maybe examples like what, what somebody in the shelter might see or a pet owner. Well, I think when we talk about arousal colloquially, like when we're just having conversations about it, we're just talking mainly usually about excitement and kind of the dopamogenic chemistry that underpins that and, and what the symptoms of that are behaviorally, which is a dog that is super excited. And excitement doesn't really, when you look at it from a kind of, biochemistry perspective doesn't really have any positive or negative like you can be excited about something bad and you can have be really excited about something good and you can become excited even if you don't want to be excited it's just a state isn't it and certainly when I talk about arousal I'm talking about excitement when I'm talking about drive I think I'm talking about focused arousal so when arousal is all like when the attention of the dog is in one direction and all of that excitement is driven towards one goal, if you like, or like one in one direction towards one outcome. And then when we're talking about impulse control, that's a tougher thing to kind of ring fence. But if we're talking about it in the context of driving arousal, I think we're talking about dogs who are able to control that drive even when they don't want to. So when a dog naturally wants to put all their arousal in one direction and we're controlling that energy and instead asking them to put it in either the opposite direction or in a more neutral position and a dog's ability to be able to respond to those sorts of cues and training places. Yeah, I'd say that colloquial is referred to as excitement all the time, but technically what we're talking about is the body's preparedness for action. And arousal's become this bad thing that everybody's talking about. And for me, like <laughs> you are more aroused the moment you wake up. The moment you open your eyes, you are more aroused than you were when you were asleep. And then as you get up and have a cold shower, your body is even more aroused. And it's not necessarily an evil. For me, when we're talking about drive, the way that we define it is focused arousal. And being able to have a dog in a high state of excitement or a high, a high preparedness for action, and then being able to really kind of what well, focus it. There's not a better word for it. Channel <laughs> yeah, channel it into exactly what it is. There's a lot of the, the fashion nowadays, certainly in dog training. From what I see, is that people are turning yeah. everything into let's reduce this dog's arousal let's mild this out let's calm this down let's and and if that's what you're after don't get a highly or easily aroused dog don't take on a malinois 
to spend your life trying to calm it down. Take on a Malinois to teach it to be calm in the right context. To, but to be able to focus that arousal, that's the magic of the Malinois, to, that, that, and, or, or the Pitbull, or the Patadale Terrier, or whatever breed or type of dog that it is that really has that. But harness it. Don't fucking hide from it. Excuse my language. Don't hide from it. Just grab it with both hands and teach it how to deal with that. I think it's easy to say that, but I think that there's a hell of a lot of skill required to do that. Like a hell of a lot of skill required to do that. I don't think that the vast majority of owners, I don't think quite a lot of trainers have the skill to to do that, especially with the higher drive dogs. And I think that propensity to have so much energy in in that kind of part of the dog, if you like, is a, a much higher susceptibility to be reactive. And when I say reactive, I mean to react to things in a more sensitive way and have a much larger reaction to things that other dogs have a much smaller reaction to. Also, I think that goal-orientated behaviours become so much more desirable to, to those particular dogs. They hunt out the ability to perform the behaviours that they're genetically predisposed to perform, those behaviours that we've selectively bred them for. And I think in those dogs that are naturally higher drive or that have a, a higher base dopamine level, because really that's what we're talking about on the chemical level here, aren't we? I think that, that it is so much harder to move them in a direction away from what they naturally want to do. I think that's probably, if we're going to talk about pit bulls, one of the, one of the main reasons that so many pits end up in, in shelter is because a lot of their predisposed, selected for natural, naturally desired behaviours aren't necessarily socially appropriate. I would agree. Right, we, you kicked up a whole thing here. But I, I, I would totally agree with you. But the problem there, of course, is that uh, part of it is about this dumbing down of a breed's capabilities. Mm-hmm. That, for me, is where we're tripping up. We're, instead of saying that, like, if you, like, there was this ridiculous statement that came out that if you're not uh, racist, you shouldn't be breedist. But... I wholeheartedly disagree with this whole breedist thing because breeds are different. They have, they are genetically different. We have artificially selected them to be genetically different. So it, it's not the same thing as racism at all. In fact, that's the beauty of it. We've put so much into this specific breed so that they're so good at that specific job. There's nothing wrong with that. That's the beauty of it. I think that there's great evidence for that as well, both in in terms of when we look at the architecture of the brain and dogs that are selected for different hunting roles and have different predispositions towards different parts of the predatory action sequence have different shaped brains. So that's a very clear difference between breed types. And then also when we look at it, when we look at it genetically, when it comes to those sorts of common polymorphisms that are only found in particular breeds and when we look at baseline dopamine levels, which again completely differ between different breeds and you do have ones that are uh, um, naturally prone to have much higher there's so much evidence that shows those differences between those breeds and i do agree with you that i think that there are a hundred of those dogs for every one person that can really enjoy what those dogs generally offer and don't get us wrong and we're not saying that every dog in that breed is going to be exactly that way but it is a numbers game so let's say that I'm going to use Malinois again because I love them. If you were to look at Mali, some people will say they're terrific pets. They can be brilliant. They can be fantastic. And don't get me wrong, there will be 
some Malinois that are fantastic pets that, that can fit in. But it is a numbers game. So for every one Malinois that fits well into a family home that doesn't do any training and only walks the dog for 15 minutes in the evening, there's going to be a 100 Malinois that don't fit into that role very well. Whereas we could flip that around with another breed that's more predisposed to being a good pet. And my guess would be that those baseline dopamine levels would predict that generally. Like at the end of the day, those dogs that have that desire to seek out opportunities to get those in, like more intrinsic rewards are going to be prone to more challenging behaviour. Yeah. Particularly when what we bred them for, like in the controversial case of the Pitbull Terrier, is completely socially undesirable behaviour. And the trouble is because, because the dogs look a certain way and we want to preserve the way that they look, by the very nature of how genetics work, we have to pre- preserve partly how they behave and what those behavioural tendencies are. Because if we were to breed a pit bull to be less muscular, for example, or to not be as strong or to be smaller, then maybe we would see changes in those behaviours. But all the while that we're breeding them to look like a pit bull, they're going to have the kind of spandrel, those, the physiological traits are going to lead to behavioural traits, which you can't rip apart, genetically speaking. So there is going to be a propensity towards, you know, for example, dog-dog aggression, which which there's no point us shying away from pretending it isn't there within the bully breeds because it is. And particularly in those more athletic bully breeds that are, are, that are, have a closer lineage to the fighting dogs. So while we're on that topic of pit bulls, I kind of want to also swing back towards the topic of arousal and how sometimes, you know, we, we, we often have a tendency, there's a big tendency to blame arousal for problem behaviors. Uh, which it can certainly be a fuel for problem behaviors, but as many might argue, it's really a product of the environment and the uh, contingencies that are that are in play for that dog. What you know? So let's use an example. Let's actually use a hypothetical example, maybe to to, to unpack this a little bit for the audience. So let's say you know many of us in the shelter world or, or people in the shelter environments are working. Let's say a pit bull, and they go into the kennel and. They're trying to put a leash on and the dog's just, you know, we, we might label it or the construct of arousal where the dog is just biting at the leash, jumping up, grabbing clothes. And a lot of time we would used to call it other things, but sometimes now it's labeled arousal. And people that are really focused on observable behaviors might ask, you know, what does arousal look like? And then how would you address that? And like that, let's say the kennel type of situation. Joe has a very brilliant mind when it comes to taking things that are not recognized in behavior and then coining terms for them and describing them. You've got to talk about selective drive. I believe a lot of people were making shit up. (laughs) 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 You've got to talk about selective drive. So I guess the way that I see it is that we've bred dogs, whether or not it's a long time ago, but we've kept, the components of that because of the way they look or whether or not it's um, more recently like in the case of the Mallies. But we bred dogs to have particular behaviours that they find intrinsically reinforcing. Uh, what I mean by that is that chemically they get a hit when they perform those particular behaviours. Generally, the behaviours that happen are that, that give the dog that hit are the behaviours or are linked to the behaviours that they were bred to do, which makes sense because biologically that's how, how evolution works, doesn't it? If, if a particular, you know, if we're going to go back to genes and if a particular gene is, is a certain way and it causes a dog to thrive, 
then they're much more likely to pass on and replicate that gene in their in their babies and so on and so forth. So because these genes for these particular behaviours have helped that particular breed to thrive and has been more likely to breed, et cetera, et cetera, because they've been successful at their job, they pass those things down. And I would argue that when a dog is in a state of arousal or is excited or has lots of dopamine, uh, which is when we when we pull that apart, what we're talking about is an anticipatory neurotransmitter that is telling the dog to seek out more of something to look for the gratification that can be had in that situation then generally speaking the gratification is that behavior that's been selected for so i term that selective drive behavior as in it's the the behavior that the dog is driven to do in those situations tends to be the 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 behavior that they've been selected for through past generations and in history Uh, with the pit bull terrier being particularly that grabbing on and holding behavior because of course way back when they were they were bred to bait bears and bulls and there's some fantastically gruesome and horrifying stories that I've found from dog fighters and people that I've had to work with throughout throughout my career um such as that they used to bring a bitch in and if she had a litter of puppies they'd put her on a bull she'd run underneath grab the bull and if the puppies were, were weaned and ready to go they would slit the throat of the bitch while she was holding on to the bull and they'd get twice as much for the puppies because it shows that tenacity um, and things like that. And so when you've got a history where you've got behaviour that's so selected for, so artificially selected for in such a kind of brutal manner, it's not surprising that even, even now dogs that come from that kind of lineage still perform those behaviours as soon as they become excited and, and fueled by by dopamine because they're looking for that instant gratification which they're going to get as a result of that behavior so i guess that's how i would explain what's happening and i'm, uh, I'm going to put that in english what she just said there <laughs> was that when you see a dog go over its arousal threshold it performs whatever it's been historically bred to do. So a gun dog is likely when you walk in and it gets more aroused, you're more likely to see your golden retriever or your Labrador go and grab something and pick it up and put it in its mouth. Whereas a pit bull is more likely to jump up and pull down and see those dragging down behaviours that you see from them. Or a Malinois is going to bite you. The likelihood. Now, we're not saying that... That will happen. That will happen with every specific breed. Jean's account, uh, there was a, a geneticist from Harvard that said, I can't remember her name, but she said uh, that genes count for between 10 and 40% and environment and experiences will make up the rest of, of that dog. So it's the environment and the experiences that the dog has are really what are going to express genes. So but if the dog doesn't have the predisposition for those behaviours, the likelihood of them being expressed as they go through their life is a lot less. Or even zero. Like genes tell you what a dog can do, environment tells you what it will do. Exactly, exactly. But, so, but the chemistry, I think, plays a massive part in that. And that's where situations will bring out behaviour that is or isn't, was or wasn't possible before. Yeah, um, yeah, and yeah. certainly when a dog is very excited, when especially when it is fueled by the dopamine gang, yeah, um, it, it is more likely to be to be that sort of behaviour, isn't it? It is more likely to be, as far as our experience is concerned, that selectively driven behaviour. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, hundred percent is the wrong term, but 
Yes, I agree. It's the right term. <laughs> it's so great to unpack this with you guys because it's kind of been the theme of the last season and this season of the podcast is seeing it through different lenses, you know, so you just mentioned the genetic component and also the ethology lens. And you just mentioned, Nandal, it's not 10 to 40% is the genetic part and, and it could be, and, it, and there's other factors in play. And you know, if we we're going to look through that ABA lens, we might say, what are the establishing operations here, right? For the motivation for the dog to exhibit that behavior in those conditions. And we might look at the conditions. So for that shelter dog, right, we might see that the establishing operations can be just because it's been confined and this lack of uh, enrichment and exercise and all the other things that can happen in a shelter. It's really great to have to talk to all these different experts about how they're viewing uh, aggression. I think one of my one of my pet peeves, I think, and one of the things that I find most frustrating about the dog training industry is this desire for people who they want to become a purist. They want to only see things through one lens, and it's crazy. And I think it's the problem is that most of the lenses that we have are contradictory. So they don't all work beautifully and make this one channel. I think the skill in our industry as behaviorists is being able to say, well, these lenses are the most relevant in this situation, and these are the ones that are going to help us with this particular dog most. But I think it's a real mistake to only see situations through one lens. I think that that I think we need to understand those different components and be able to see one situation through many, many, many lenses, like all of them if we can, or as many mm. of them as possible, to really truly understand what is happening. I 100% agree. I, th- I think it's, uh, I think we're seeing that. I think we're seeing somewhat of a paradigm shift towards seeing other sciences come into training and behavior. It's kind of like mixed martial arts, you know, for many, many years, everyone was doing one type of discipline. And then all it took was a few decades for everybody to realize it's, it's better to be, you know, take the best of each discipline and mix it all together. And you can have a much better understanding of what to do. I love that analogy. It's good to see that happening in the dog training world. At least that's my mission for the podcast too, is to really just uh, have a nice, uh, broad, open conversation about all the different sciences that we can involve with helping our dogs. So let's segue to, do you want to talk more about pit bulls actually? Uh, because yeah. that's a very popular topic. And I know you you know so much, you guys know so much about this, this the breed. And I know a lot of our listeners are interested in this. And you had mentioned things like, you know, we're, we're, we've obviously selected for certain behavioral traits or characteristics and certain breeds. What are your conversations like with clients when they have, let's say, a dog that is dog aggressive, your, your pit bulls that have, or bully breeds that are dog aggressive? What has your conversation go with them with getting them to understand, you know, what they've got in front of them and alleviating some of their concern, but also uh, having realistic expectations? I think I always would start out on a practical level because that's what the vast majority of my clients want. Like they're happy to hear the history. They're happy to hear why their dog is doing it. But really, they want to know what's going to happen and what they what to do. And if they do, if they follow the plan, what their life can look like. So usually the first conversation I'll have will be about um, protocol that we that we use, which is the anti-socialization protocol. Um, where we talk about teaching a dog to live and thrive and have a fantastic quality of life, which isn't a social life, and how you can you can train a dog. You know, I've got tons and tons of clients who can take their dog out in a busy dog park with no problems, but the dog won't socialise. The dog isn't a social dog, and we teach the dogs not to socialise and how they can actually alleviate a lot of their concerns and a lot of the decisions that they're making that they feel they're failing on and a lot of decisions that they feel their dog is failing on 
just scrap them, just take them out of the picture completely and still have a really good life with their dog. And that's usually with the bull terriers where I start when we're talking about dog aggression because immediately then there's a relief and there's a feeling that they can have a decent life irrespective of the history, irrespective of why the dog might be performing some of these behaviours and how a lot of the a lot of the bully breeds when they do have those do have those fights actually find them well reinforcing by definition you know they are then more likely to seek out opportunities to fight again because there is some level of of satisfaction that has occurred as a result of that tactile combat um so we talk about that can um, i just can i sorry to interrupt can yeah, i just okay. clarify one thing that yeah. you mentioned there because your definition of a dog park which the the english definition and the american definition are very different things in america they have fenced off fields like, yeah. where it's purposeful where you take your dogs and everybody lets them off lead and they have a party whereas in the uk any place that you see dogs is kind of called a, a dog park isn't it? Park, like, yeah. yeah rather than like a country park <laughs> yeah country park one thing that we say especially to clients is that you have various types of dogs you have disco dogs and you have library dogs and a disco dog is a really sociable dog that enjoys going to a dog park and meeting up with its mates and, you know, dancing to the music. And a library dog isn't that dog. And if you've got a library dog, you don't take it to the disco because it's not going to enjoy itself. And you know that mate that always has a punch-up when you go out on a night out? <laughs> <laughs> There's another term from the UK, a punch-up. Oh, a punch-up. A little bar fight. <laughs> We're not suggesting that you take, using the anti-socialisation protocol to take dogs that aren't suitable to go to venues that are specifically for socializing dogs Uh, and whether they're suitable is a whole different discussion in itself but so that's that's normally the first kind of thing that i go through which is the more practical side of things and then we can work on stuff like that but then i think it's also really important to talk about what the dog's needs are um and when you do have certainly those kind of athletic breads so there's to my mind, there's three quite distinct types of pit mix that you see quite often. So you see the more mastiffy ones that are more predisposed to human aggression, I'd say, and a little bit more predisposed to kind of resource guarding issues. And I would say are a higher risk category in terms of public safety issues. You have your very athletic, more skinny type ones, the ones that most people who are fanatical about the breed would say are the true pit bulls, the ones that have come down from the bull and terrier mix who are tenacious and very able those ones uh, seem to be as a trend more likely to get involved in dog fights and be much more a little bit more predatory as well but also have uh, other challenges just in terms of their energy levels and frustration levels and things like that and then you have these little sort of staffy mixes that tend to be great and don't actually tend to cause much of a problem with anything other than being quite excitable dogs and when we're talking about the dog's needs for having some fix for that need for that um kind of like combative tactile behavior i do often talk a lot with my clients about play fighting which i know is controversial but i actually think is a a lifesaver for some of these dogs when it's done properly right so, so you're talking more of like a ritualized aggression type of situation and and they're learning the appropriate uh, skills to kind of cope with that if they're faced with that type of situation in a sense yeah and and i'm talking about i'm talking about play fighting with the dog i'm talking about having physical play with the dog 
like certainly with my with my boy with my pit bull um and with a lot of the pit bulls that I fostered and worked with teaching the dogs the rules and giving them an outlet for that need to use their mouth on skin and have tactile stimulation in an aroused uh, or an excited state I think if you don't give them that outlet, they will seek it and find it elsewhere. And if you do give them that outlet, as long as it's on a balance and as long as it's controlled, I think it does itch a, itch a, scr- itch a scratch that kind of needs to be itched with a lot of those dogs. You read my mind. I was I was just going to ask you too about that and, you know, using these games. So let's say, uh, and maybe Nando, you can even get into other breeds like the Malinois. When you're using toys or these games where you are bringing up, you know, this excitement, air quotes, excitement, arousal, part of this overall picture, are there potential issues? And I get that question a lot from trainers and from clients, you know, am I going to cause issues by, you know, over arousal or overstimulation, which we've seen can, you know, know, quote unquote, again, spill over into an aggressive response with a dog that has, again, quote unquote, poor impulse control, right? So we're throwing out all these constructs. But I think people that have experienced that particular phenomenon will sort of have a picture of what I'm talking about. So really high rate of behaviors at a, a high level of intensity if I was to operationalize it. And, and then, you know, somebody's playing tug with them or, and then, or maybe even the dog's tugging on the leash or something like that. And then the dog starts to bite the person or cannot control that, those actions. So. Um, tell me more about what you do in those scenarios or, or if you see problems there. Yeah, I think that there is the potential for that to happen. There is the potential, potential for creating so much arousal in a dog when it's not focused that it displays selective drive behaviors like we were talking about earlier on. And whether that is a bully type dog that jumps up and grabs your clothing and tries to tug you down, or it's a Malinois that gives you a, a bite in the leg or Whatever it might be, you can do that. But usually that's because the training has been or the play hasn't, you haven't set those boundaries in place. You haven't periodically and incrementally built that arousal. When we're talking about drive, we talk about focused arousal. So we're not talking about bringing a dog up so it's so excited or so highly aroused that it can't cope because that's what most people would define as over arousal. What we're talking about is pushing that ceiling up each time so that you can bring the dog up to a certain level of arousal, but still have it focused, still get it to leave the toy when you ask it to, still get it to return the toy, but still be there with enough kind of enthusiasm, with enough oomph behind it so that you can really, really focus that. And and certainly for dogs that are doing sports dog type stuff, that's the whole point. We're trying to lift that that level so that the dog can cope and be focused and enjoy that level of arousal so that it's um it's controlled it's when you see trainers that or or clients that have gone out and just brought the dog up and they start getting really tactile with the dog and they start really really heavily tugging to start off and overly stimulating them is when you start running into problems but just like everything it has to be done incrementally and teach the dog this is how you focus and this is how you bring yourself down for us we talk about recovery which is what creates resilience in dogs the ability to practice being aroused but then practice recovering from that high arousal state that's a skill for the dog that, that learns. And I believe 
that a dog that has practiced that and successfully done it several times is going to be able to cope in a highly arousing situation much better than a dog that's never been able to practice and recover from being highly aroused. And in fact, you've got that. So like you always say, there used to be, people used to talk about the the, um, curve and the bell curve of arousal and performance. I can't remember the bloody name of it. You know it. (laughs) What's the Um, name of it? D and K, but I can't think of. No, that's Dunning-Kruger, and that's the, oh, that's that's the, the different thing. But anyway, the arousal, <laughs> so we used to talk a lot about this arousal, arousal the, the fact that there was this kind of point, there was this point for every individual whereby your arousal gets to a certain point, it hits that point, and your performance starts to dip. Nando was the first one who said to me, that's ridiculous that there's this point in an individual. Surely, like everything else, we can move that point, depending on training and exposure. And it got me thinking about it. Yeah, it's Dogson, that's it. And it got me thinking about it. And you're absolutely right. Bang on, really. Because when we're training dogs, like when I first started training Blake to do Mondio, he couldn't manage the arousal of the situation when he would first bite the decoy. And so we had lots of conflict behavior and lots of vocalization and behavior that in bite what you don't really want to see. Um, he'd bite quite low down, which showed kind of like a real lack of confidence. And there was all this conflict because it was just, there was just a lot of arousal there for him. So we brought it right, right, right back kept him a lot lower, started biting. Now, in those situations, he has no problem at all. In fact, we pushed him far, far, far further than that. And the performance of the dog in those arousing situations or in in that state of chemistry where there's a lot going on and a lot of stimulation, chemically speaking, inside the dog, is something that once a dog has regular controlled exposure to it, you can move it up and up and up and up and up. And I think... When, when you have those kind of things where a dog will attack someone or, you know, suddenly start getting very, very snappy, you know, like Lisa used to when we first got her, like one of our, our rescue Mally used to, as soon as we got any toys out, even when we were really calmly playing with her, she'd get really air snappy and start biting your face. Biting towards your face, yeah. Biting right towards your face. And, um, and she just couldn't manage it at all. But she had had no exposure to that. And she found that any engagement that included some sort of excitement just too much Mm. now she's great with the toy but it's been a real gradual process it requires exposure and training and a process Mm. it's not black and white is it for me it's that the the key is the recovery it's the practice not only of being highly aroused but also from coming down from being highly aroused and at the moment the fashion in dog training or behavior seems to be just practice the low arousal part so that when the dog does come up, it never has the ability. It's not, it's not done it before. It doesn't know how to come down. It doesn't know how to set itself. I genuinely believe that's a key component that's Agreed. really missing. And it's just not realistic. It's not realistic, especially for these types of breeds that are more likely to get in trouble anyway. Like a lot of the bullies that I bring in, you just take them into a different room and it's exciting for them. You just wear a different coat that has a bit of fur around the collar and that's too exciting for them. Like there's, there's, that they have to be able to manage in real life. Mm. And there are definitely breeds that are more predisposed, like mainly the breeds that get in trouble, that do find life as a whole incredibly stimulating. There there are so many different things that affect the state of arousal, like even things that are completely out of our control. So temperature, temperature will, will change your arousal level and it will do for a dog as well. But we have no control over that. As I say, I don't want to keep banging on about it, but you've got to you've got to allow the dog to practice to practice recovery. and recover. 
it's really the big part of the kind of the art and mechanics of training that really takes time. Like you, know, you guys are using a lot of like sport dog language. I could hear a lot of the things you're saying are very common in the sport dog world too, right? But we might not see that necessarily carry over to when we're looking at working with behavior problems or foundational skills training with dogs, right? And it just, it makes so much sense when you start talking about it because it's not something that's easily learned how to work with dogs in monitoring that and regulating that, knowing how to modify our own behavior to adapt to that dog. And you mentioned that resiliency. It's just so crucial with, especially aggression cases, dogs that have a poor uh, resiliency or the ability to cope with stress. I wish I could go back in time because I, I've definitely, I've learned more about teaching dogs not to bite via teaching dogs to bite than I ever knew would be imaginable. You know, I spent the first three quarters of my career teaching dogs not to bite people. And I spent the last, you know, three years teaching dogs to bite people. And the amount of information and the amount of skills, the amount of just like exercises and experiences that I've had now that mean that a dog that I saw, you know, 11 years ago makes so much more sense. I wish if I could give one tip to anyone doing aggression cases, it would be to at least try and get some kind of experience in understanding the world of training dogs to bite. I recommend it all the time, yeah. I'd say it would. It comes back to this looking through different lenses and trying to be the master of every lens going, but you have to take the time to learn different lenses, not just in the theoretical world, but also in the practical world as well. So if you're a fantastic clicker uh, shaping trainer and all you all, what you really, really excel at is free shaping, then you need to learn how to lure properly or reward with a toy. And one of the things that I would we both kind of say now is that take the time to spend a few months a year training one of your own dogs to do a sport, whether that's agility or bite work or obedience. There's so much to learn from those trainers and they might not know the first thing about aggression in dogs. Like I've had some horrific advice from sport dog trainers about how to break <laughs> up a dog fight and stuff like that. But what they do know, they're amazing at. It's so easy to go, I'm not going to learn from them because they do something I disagree with. Where, like, I don't know. We go to a club where the whole club uses aversives apart from us two. And that is that is the Mondial world in Spain. You're not going to get away with yeah, yeah, they, get away it, from that. Yeah, really. But but it, it would be so easy for us to not go there because they do that. But we have learned a hell of a lot, and we might not do it exactly the same way that they do it. But we we can take things that they have done, mould it that, to fit our own ethics, or and try and bring up and get the same or better results that they get. So it's. About learning broadly, isn't it? It's, it's about really about learning broadly. Yeah, I think that's a, for dog trainers. It's really about learning broadly. I think as well that the, the theory will only take you so far. And I think certainly when I went to uni, you know, you can you can you can get so caught into this idea that you need to know more. You need to know more. You need to know more knowledge theory. Read more. Do more lectures. Read more. Do more lectures. And then the practical skills that you're developing are so very specific. And I think that um, particularly in the world of behavior modification, we get trapped into a real kind of, um, uh, what's it called when you get trapped into a ditch? Cycle. Like into a, like into a ditch. Like you get, get caught trapped in a, in a ditch. No, I can't think of the, the same. But, you know, you, get, you, can get really, you can get really caught into this thing where you're just doing like, you're basically just doing systematic desensitization and, and counter conditioning all the time or like playing look at that all the time. And you 
miss the art of actual dog training. And I think the the thing you were saying about what we say to people is that, you know, just choose a sport. It doesn't matter what sport it is and try and train up to competitive level. Not the everyday competition. That's, that's not what it's not about getting rhythms. It's about developing the manual mechanical skills of using toys, of training something to somebody else's criteria. Because I think a lot of the time we see trainers and behaviorists in different camps. Actually, what I think should be the case is that you have to be a shit hot trainer to do behavior modification mm. successfully, effectively. I mean, for me, sorry, uh, for me, uh, the last thing I kind of want to say is that the best trainers that the the people that I kind of look up to and that, that I've worked with and I've gone bloody hell, they really, really know their stuff. They There's always a balance there of them being incredibly knowledgeable scientifically and incredibly skilled practically. And the trainers that I've worked with that are missing one side of those, they may be phenomenal practically, but they clearly don't know what's going on inside a dog at all or vice versa they're, they're phenomenal at uh, they might be some of the top scientists in canine neurochemistry but they look like they're stroking a cat when they're trying to work with a dog so it's for me it's, if you want to be really really skilled you've got to find yourself in that middle there know the science understand the science but know how to practically apply it and be skilled at applying it I highly agree because it can be evidence. You know, a common question I get is, you know, what about a dog? We work in an aggression case, right? And maybe we are going to do counter conditioning. But what if the dog doesn't take food? Now, let's say it's a border collie that's not taking food out in the, in the real world, right? So we're working on a dog that, a border collie that's barking and lunging at other dogs and it's not taking food. So, question again, what do you do then? And a lot of trainers will, that I've experienced with using punishment based methods will go back to that old method of like, if food's not going to work, I'll use punishment. But then when you start to gain more knowledge, you learn other ways to modify the environment. But what then? What if the dog really isn't into that food and is into toys? And okay, let's use toys, but how do we use them? What if that dog's got poor resiliency and we're upping that arousal so that those mechanical skills and having that art, the art of being able to watch for and regulate that through good mechanics is what comes from branching out and learning other, other things, as you mentioned. So it's amazing when you start to look at other lenses and other and get get that experience and with people as you had mentioned just other people that you might not agree with all their methods but they're still going to teach you things that's going to help you can apply that to those cases those special cases where you what you're using most of the time might not work for that particular dog so yeah i'm i'm on the same page as you guys it's great to just hear you know you want to, it's just good to get out there and get more more experience that way I think when it comes specifically to aggression cases as well, I think that toys are often underutilized. And I actually think that toys are an incredible way to begin to layer pressure on a dog, which is what you need to do when you're working on an aggression case if you intend to rehabilitate that dog back into society. Because life is, is full of pressure, isn't it? Eye contact can be a hell of a lot of pressure for a dog. And actually, if you learn to play with a dog effectively, when you first start playing with those sorts of dogs, you know, you don't look at them and you turn your back on them and you keep the toy very low and you, you do it in a very particular way. You can begin to layer on things like eye contact in, in a in a kind of jovial play setting where the dog can get to rehearse some of those behaviours that they otherwise might be redirecting onto you. And you can also, it gives you a much better read 
on how they're feeling because how they're moving and how they're the, the pressure they're putting on a toy can give you so much more information about the state of play and how they're feeling and when you're going when you're you know just maybe a millimeter over the mark or you're not quite at the mark yet and you can go a little bit further you can get information there's a dialogue there to be had that i just don't think you can get in any other way than playing with the dog you touched on something there well two things firstly you've upset the whole world saying the word pressure we're all going to be in trouble for that now oh. um and secondly <laughs> um She's using the UK talk- sense of the term pressure. <laughs> I justified it. I justified it. I meant There's an extra U in that. There's an extra U in that word. <laughs> the other thing as well, I think that you mentioned there is, is being a millimeter away from the surfing. Yeah, surfing the threshold is what we call it, isn't it? And and it's for me when I'm when I'm dealing with aggression cases, I think that. There's more bang for your buck the closer you can get to the dog's threshold without tipping the dog over and then allowing it to recover than what seems to be the fashion where we keep the dog so far away from the threshold that it could barely be called counter-conditional desensitization. <laughs> for a while, I think we mentioned this, we talk about this all, for, all the I time. We so. talk about that we're in this kind of fear period in dog training where it's really easy to assign everything to fear. So every dog is scared. And I just don't believe that. No. I don't believe that at all. I think there are some dogs out there that like a tear up. There are some people out there that enjoy violence. They enjoy violence, okay? And I think there are dogs that, that's not pointing at me. <laughs> there are dogs that, <laughs> that learn to enjoy violence. There's a lot to be said there for taking a dog closer to its threshold. Now, I'm not, not suggesting this necessarily for owners, because as a dog trainer, as a behaviorist, as a professional, your skill set should be a lot higher than the owner. But also there's an argument for you doing some of the training as the professional, because you can get them close to the threshold which in turn will get more bang for the buck, which in turn should solve that place or bring it to a, a resolution that is successful quicker than what an owner is going to be able to do. I'm really aware that some of the language that we use might sound very unfashionable in terms of that we use terms like arousal and terms like drive. And, and But I think so long as we've justified, so long as an individual has justified what they mean by that term, I think there's actually significant benefit to be had by using terms like that but instead of shying away from them instead of shying away mm. from them yeah like like us saying okay look we're not going to use the term arousal now because people misuse it we're not going to use the term arousal, drive now because people don't really understand me but as long as we say well this is what arousal means to us this is what drive means that and this is what i'm going to mean when i say it in this context now in this conversation that's a lot better than us continually going around the bush saying oh i can't use this word can't use this word I think it's really important and helpful to have a common language when we're discussing certain topics, you know, especially with aggression. I think it's, 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 there's lots of different languages we could use, but I think there's a lot of terms that can be used universally and then apply and can be understandable uh, when we're discussing this topic. And it's, it's, you know, you mentioned, Nando, about how, you know, we are stepping towards this kind of leaning towards this all dogs are fearful or we're, we're really worried about placing dogs in situations. And, you know, with some dogs, sure, but I think you're also correct in that. It's not all fear, you know, and, and certainly, you know, when, we, when you look at the genetics and the ethology aspect, we didn't select for fear, right? We weren't selecting, I want the fearful dogs. Uh, you know, many of the times we're doing the complete opposite and we're, we're, you know, truncating or 
hypertrophing some of that the the parts of the predatory motor sequence that we got these dogs to do these things and so if we were to argue it's all fear-based that would be i think doing the dogs a disservice when we're trying to help them when you know we've when we selected for that and i think some of the time putting significant emotional states onto these behaviors is kind of a mistake anyway like i don't like we don't we don't know their private emotions around these particular ideas we don't know what they're feeling when they're performing these behaviors we can make guesses based on shoddy the shoddy science we have around body language and our ridiculous interpretation of of, of what the dogs are, are trying to tell us and, and we can make guesses based on this but actually when we when we take that out of the situation and we do look at it from a more from an intrinsic driving perspective and say we you know this dog's been bred to do this behavior therefore there's probably some chemical that is happening as a result of him performing this behavior and therefore he's likely to do it again you know it does i think stripping out the emotion sometimes is really helpful yeah i agree i think um when we start because because they can become labels and constructs again when we start labeling things and making our own interpretations i think it would be helpful in some cases but again we do have to be careful about how we use those those when we're applying emotions to uh, something we have no idea if they're experiencing that in the first place so I kind of wanted to, you know, on this, uh, to segue over to how we can prevent some of this stuff. So this aggression and these issues that we're seeing with dogs, and especially now, I'm sure you're seeing the same thing over where you are, where there's many puppies being purchased or bred or adopted and, and with pandemic issues. And that's been another theme of this season's podcast is to look at these puppies and what we can do to prevent aggression issues from kind of not so kind of take a step back and not just from your typical let's socialize and make sure they're well socialized but more from a global scale and how we are acquiring puppies and getting dogs and what your thoughts are there i think again it's about i mean it's it's the boring answer about researching breeds and in trying to create bottlenecks where owners can't just go and on impulse buy a great dame because they saw it in the movie and they thought it was cool um i think there needs to be or, or there should be some level of not licensing, but something that prevents some breeds from being missold. There should be something in place because at the moment there are unscrupulous breeders and there are people going out on a whim and buying dogs. But also there is also a, a massive overpopulation of dogs. Like what is it? I think it's three quarter. At, um, I'm trying to remember what the figures are. 900 million dogs in the in the world, and I think 83% of them are free roaming. That's so probably close to a billion. That was a, that was Ray Coppinger when he was uh, the late great Ray Coppinger, put around 900 million. It's, it's got to be more than that now. Most of the dogs are not owned by anybody. <laughs> yeah, right? they're village dogs. They're street dogs. Uh, and yeah. Yeah, yeah, so that's that for me is that, that there's just a massive overpopulation of dogs that are being brought in. And then in my personal experience, it goes back to researching the researching the breed. It's that mis mismatch of the type of dog somebody's got and the type of life that they live. And 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 I would like to add that I think some of the the science, particularly the more shoddy science, and then this kind of thing that we've been doing lately as professionals going, oh, don't look at the breed, look at the individual. I actually think that that's been doing that process a disservice. Because I actually think it's quite good to bang labels on golden retrievers and say they generally make good pet dogs. I think that's a good thing. I, that's what I want the public to think about. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I want the public to think that. I, I like this idea of thinking about 
what, what I used to talk to owners about when they used to ring me and say, you know, what, what kind of dog should we get? One of the things I used to say was, think about what the dog was bred to do and imagine that's your worst case scenario is the dog's probably going to be doing that all the time because then that does lead people to looking more at your dogs that use their nose a lot more or dogs that are gun dogs and things like that rather than dogs that bite people for a living or that bite other dogs for a living and things like that. And I think that is quite a good rule of thumb. But I actually think putting, putting labels on breeds of dog, this is going to sound awful, isn't the worst thing in the world. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a numbers game. It is a numbers game. If you give 100 first-time owners a golden retriever puppy and you give 100 first-time owners a Malinois puppy, there are, is likely going to be a lot more of those first-time Malinois owners that have screwed up them dogs than the golden retriever puppies. It's, I mean, I don't think there are many dog trainers that are going to disagree with that. Some of those Malleys are going to be absolutely fine, and some of them golden retrievers are going to bite people. But I bet you I'd put my wages on it that there's going to be more Malleys biting people than golden retrievers. 100%, 100%. Also, more unhappy owners. Like, I do sometimes look at a breed decision and just think to myself, oh, like you're a really nice owner and you could have had a really nice life and now instead you're just going to have cattle for the next 12 years. Yeah, it's sort of like you two. You guys just got your fourth Malinois and I wouldn't wish that on anyone, <laughs> including the trainers out <laughs> there. So. <laughs> we love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We are those idiots. <laughs> well, congratulations on your, your sixth dog, right? Is that, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Thank that's you. The sixth dog, so <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> Where can people find more about you guys? You guys have a, a lot of educational opportunities for both trainers and pet owners, correct? And uh, where, where can they look for that? And what else are you working on? Well, predominantly, we, we teach dog trainers and behaviorists. That's what we do. We have a school, an online school called the School of Canine Science, which you can find on Facebook and on uh, YouTube, as well as Instagram, although we're, we're a bit rubbish at Instagram. Mm-hmm. We also have our own pages. So I run uh, Incredimal on Instagram and Facebook. And I run Joe Rosie Archie Super Pit and Co on Facebook and just Joe Rosie H on Instagram. That's what we do as an everyday living, isn't it? But for fun, we train Monday Ring and that kind of stuff. So what else are we up to? In terms of uh, opportunities to learn with us, we have a course called the Puppy Lab, which I genuinely think is a course that every dog trainer out there should do, um, which is on the School of Canine Science online. Um, I mean, we are slightly biased in fairness. But... <laughs> I think it's just, I think it's a course that, I think it, it, sh- it will teach people about what a dog is. Yeah. And uh, for me, like, so there's various different modules in these courses. And the, the, my favorite module in Puppy Lab is learning theory because we dispel some enormous myths. Well, in learning theory, especially classical and operant conditioning, we, we look at various different things that are commonly banded about by dog trainers. And then we look at the actual science that's on it by the original scientists and uh, and quote them and bring out all their papers and, and discuss it uh, in depth. And that's kind of what we do. But we also have courses that are... Um, like 30 days. 30 days, which are that that balance of learning the science and then practically applying it as well with your own dog. Yeah, yeah. And that's much more better for kind of like people who are just really enthusiastic about dog training and want something to do for the next 30 days while they can't leave the house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, and people can attend the school from anywhere in the world, right? Anywhere in the world. Yeah, we've got about 12,000 students internationally at the moment. 
Uh, at the moment, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah at the moment, um, yeah. You're currently Fantastic. learning with us, which is cool. And what, I mean, what we like about the online stuff that we were never able to do in person is teach something from the ground upwards. Because it's very difficult, as you know, when you're lecturing, you have to assume a certain level of knowledge and you kind of go, mm, are they here or are they up here? And then you need to kind of work out where you're going to start from and what you're going to teach someone. What's fantastic about teaching online is that you can start from zero and work all the way up to expert level because there's no time limit. And you can break it down to these lovely bite-sized chunks so that they can learn this information and revisit it again and again and again, which is just why online online teaching for us yeah. has become something that we enjoy doing so much. A lot of people are scared of the online stuff. And actually, if you go into it, so what we've done at the moment is we've got a free webinar out on um, canine intelligence. And it kind of gives people that opportunity to see whether learning is right for them online because a lot of people are worried about you know not being able to do it and not being able to practically apply it so we have our standard courses but then we have our groups on facebook generally where we kind of go through all the things and people can ask questions and they post videos and say oh i'm really struggling with this element um and then we can do a live and show yeah. our dogs and yeah yeah so it's it, we're really enjoying that in a moment aren't we at the moment, for, for the School of Canine Science, we're writing new courses, but they're secret. They are top secret. Top I thought secret. you were going to get started. We're not even now. writing them. We're filming them now. So we're yeah. on to that stage of filming them, then being the operative word. But Stop sh- it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I do think there's a shift towards online learning. Many people are becoming much more comfortable with that. And uh, what else are they going to do during a pandemic, right? Can't learn anything in person right now. Are you going to go back to in-person learning at some point once things lift? Never. As far as he writes. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I, I, I well, we, will, we will carry on doing. We do an annual competition at Bassy Cats and Dogs Home called uh, the Trainer of the Year where we take 30 or so trainers who have applied and we run a competition whereby they're given three shelter dogs each and throughout the week they have to train them different behaviors as well as a final behavior and adds up to points and stuff and then you have one crowned winner um, and we've not been able to run that this year i love that that's yeah, really that's good fun so hopefully course. we'll be able to get back on that and we kind of interweave that with different lectures and stuff that well with whatever comes up really that's that happens to be the case because you know what it's like working in shelters you don't know what you're going to find so it's just it's just a, a brilliant thing so we'll still do that in person we'll probably still do we do do the odds um staff training for different shelters, yeah, which yeah, we'll yeah. probably still do when. No, I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will when we get the opportunity. But six dogs and a four-year-old and a wedding to get through. Underachievers, <laughs> tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nando and Joe, thank you so much for coming on. I hope to visit you. I want to Moira and I want to come out to Spain. I will. Uh, promise i can put on a bite suit uh, yes. for you as well if you need that oh, and, uh, that's that. something oh, that's so something i, I recommend trainers do you know if you want to f- experience what it's like to be bitten i think that's important if you're going to be working aggression cases just to what to do if you do get yes. feeling that that m- momentum and, and what it feels like to have a dog lat or several latched on to you. Hanging off you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah i hope to see you guys soon in the future thanks again for coming on and uh i wish you a happy 2021 Michael, it's always it's always a pleasure, mate. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for joining me for the Bitey End of the Dog. If you like the show, please feel free to subscribe, share, and give a rating. And hop on over to AggressiveDog.com 
or thelooseleashacademy.com for more information about webinars, courses, and conferences, all dedicated to helping dogs with aggression issues. And don't forget, the Aggression in Dogs Conference will be happening from October 22nd to 24th with 12 amazing speakers, all streaming from a television studio in Chicago. It's going to be a truly unique event in 2021.